Hello and welcome to day two of the Knowing Me, Knowing Ed You Festival of Education podcast special. Just as with day one, I've been chatting to the day two festival speakers to find out what they're talking about and why. And today's podcast starts with a chat with Nick Rose. Right now I'm with Nick Rose, who's currently at the Institute for Teaching um, and also the co-author of a book with David Dido. Nick, can you tell us a bit about the session you did and, and more about what the book uh, aims to address? Yeah, so the book was called What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology. And uh, really it started actually, I mean, sort of conversations at the uh, Wellington Festival like a couple of years before between me and David, where we both sat down and uh, were just chatting kind of like vaguely. But it turned out that both of us were thinking about writing a book about the kind of psychology that teachers might find useful when thinking about the changes in their, their classroom practice. And so that really was the sort of the, the inspiration for the book, really. Um, David would point to uh, the APA, it's the American Psychological Association, published like 20 things all teachers should know about psychology, some of which he thought were really good, but others he thought, yeah, well, that's not going to really help a classroom teacher. It's just so far removed from the classroom. Yeah. It's not really applicable. So we wanted to really capture the, the bits of psychology that we thought teachers would be able to use, yeah. plus also point out, uh, and I use the phrase professional scepticism, areas where, you know, a lot of psychology hasn't been replicated, and some of the, the some of the conclusions are tentative, and some are spurious. Yeah. And for a, uh, a teacher with no background in psychology, I mean, how how the how heck do you could navigate they know? that? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we just wanted to signpost. It is a bit. It was subjective. It wasn't our, our our views as teachers about the bits of psychology that actually teachers should be yeah a little bit cautious about, as well as the bits we thought were really useful. And so um, now you work at the Institute for Teaching. Is that is you taking that a step further? And are you are you teaching on the on the masters? What are you? Yeah. So um, I mean, it goes back ages actually. When I started blogging back in two thousand and thirteen, my blog's called Evidence into Practice. And for me, as a classroom teacher, uh, it always kind of shocked me really how little evidence was actually used for the, the decisions about how we taught, how we structured the curriculum, uh, what sort of you know how we spent our money as a school, and all of these kinds of things. And I think you know over that time. Uh, things like the Education Endowment Foundation uh, and, uh, you know, the College of Teaching and Research Ed and all these kinds of things have all started to kind of bring sort of evidence back into the conversation. Um, what's really fascinating about working for the IFT and working on this, the, the design of the, the master's programme and some of the delivery elements of it um, is that, you know, you get into the knotty problems. All right? So mo most teachers will have heard of things like retrieval practice. Yeah. You know, and retrieval practice... Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly sound bet. There's good evidence from both laboratory and classroom studies pointing in the same direction that actually it can help children, you know, slow the rate of forgetting, essentially. So mm -hmm. that actually they're retaining that information long term. Um, and that's great. But then you get into the really nitty gritty of it. Right. So what is it that children should yeah. be doing retrieval practice on? And, you know, in subjects like math and science, you know, it's actually, it's not too bad. You know, science, for instance, has like some really important scientific ideas and some vocabulary that without which it's really hard to study science. But what does it look like in English or 
art yeah. or music, you know. And what's been really fascinating is working with teachers across phases and across subjects, uh, taking that evidence and then supporting them in looking at ways that they can really utilise that in their classroom practice um, in a way that's really genuinely uh, helping their pupils. And I always hesitate in asking this question. So I, I, can you give us an example of from a subject or, um, I don't know, any any schools that you've worked with, how they have started to put it into practice? Yeah, you know, so... What form does it take? Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, a lot of our teachers are looking at sort of low-stakes quizzing yeah. as, a, as a, like a pretty, pretty kind of classic strategy. But others, you know, are looking at interleaving and other kind of, you know, high-rated strategies and things like Dunlosky's review of, of, you know, study strategies that students can use. Um, now, you know, uh, for, I, mean, I think it's something uh, subject like English, it's a lot less clear as to what, what should you be doing, you know. Uh, for, for science, we're talking about the scientific vocabulary. Well, obviously in English, it's, it's all of the vocabulary, isn't it? You yeah. Know? It's like yeah. all the tier two, and, you know, before you even get to tier three kind of words. Um, so, you know, what's been interesting is them working, uh, you know, with other teachers on the master's, but also with their peers within their school. Um, to do, like, for, I'll just give you one example. You know, like, um, one of our teachers decided uh, what would be quite good is um, uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, low-frequency words like idyll and stuff like that in a lot of the sort of the Gothic poetry that, that students are reading. Now, I'm not an English teacher, so if I get anything wrong here, this yeah. is my mistake, not the teacher's. Um, but one of the things he was sort of saying is that, well, you know, uh, you know, would, would helping children practice on this vocabulary actually help them get more out of the poetry and, and be able to write more yes in more sophisticated ways about it um then you've got to identify well, which vocabulary mm-hmm. okay and then you've got to identify well we can't just give an oxford english dif- dictionary definition of it because the kids won't understand half the words in that definition yeah so yeah, context space excellent absolutely so it's like you know and when you really break it down and i think what's really uh, great is is we're working with more experienced teachers uh who, who could have got that that, that subject knowledge and the craft, uh, but they're really just sort of keen to kind of introduce things into their teaching uh, that, you know, are, are just having that kind of leverage on, on pupil outcomes. Is, is retrieval practice both about assessment and curriculum design? Like, no, and it taps into so many questions yeah. like that. You know, one of the, one of the first, in Pashler Sal's sort of summary, uh, it's the, the IES practice guide, organising instruction study, um, uh, back in 2007. I mean, one of the recommendations is to identify the sort of the, the core concepts, the core facts, the core vocabulary that you want students to become really, you know, confident and fluent in. Um, you know, that, that's an easy thing to tick off, isn't it? You know, but actually, the the, the the genuine elements of okay, well, you know, what is I want them to to be able to consolidate over time that would actually be meaningful for their yeah, understanding of poetry or their understanding of science yeah. or history or modern languages and all these kind of things are the sorts of things that, you know, I can't answer. You know, I, might, I, I can perhaps for science a bit. Yeah. And I, that's the difficult thing, I think, that teachers are now starting to find. It's teachers who have been perhaps, you know, reading the book or, or have been sort of engaging with some of this sort of evidence base. Um, it's really hard, unsupported, to solve all those, like, little problems. Uh, uh, you know, and, you know, being able to sort of share good approaches that our teachers are using to solve some of the things, like feedback. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you another kind of dichotomy that's sort of come through is that uh, multiple choice questions, right? Uh, Sumeraki and Weinstein are a couple of scientists out in the States. They're called the Learning Scientists. Yeah. There was a great article in the Impact Journal that uh, College Teaching put together recently talking about the kinds of like, you know, how to try and implement this in your classroom. And it turns out that multiple choice questions can be really good, you know, for retrieval practice. 
Uh, in fact, the form doesn't seem to matter too much. But coming up with really good multiple choice questions is really hard and time consuming. Yeah. On the other hand, when you're giving feedback, it's really quick. You know, you can just kind of highlight the right answers. Yeah. On the other hand, putting up some key words and asking the kids to do the definitions is really quick to produce, but the feedback takes longer. And so trying to find the balance between those, because in order to change your practice, it has to be something that's, you know, meaningful and sustainable and that's not adding to your workload. It's something that can become a, like a routine part of your everyday teaching. Yeah. Um, and again, so working with people like Peps McCree has put a lot of work into looking at how can we help really scaffold right, like behaviour change, particularly if you've been teaching for a while. And I'll say this personal kind of thing. You, you get into a pattern, you get into your routines. And really to change your practice, sometimes you have to really unpick some of the things that you do in the classroom and then really practice trying to do something new with enough time for it to become automated and just feel comfortable and just part of your natural practice. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's a rather rambling response to your question, but I mean, you know, hopefully you can see in there some of the complexities of what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I definitely agree. There's, um, there's a long-term benefit of putting, that you, you reap from um, putting the time into designing good good questions that you can bank over time, you can share with colleagues, and uh, they will continue to be useful over time. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and, and actually, one of the things that really excites me about the master's course is that we will be able to accumulate over time the experience of, and the techniques that have been used and the strategies they, that teachers have come up with within their subject areas to solve some of these problems, logistical, but also uh, theoretical. You know, so like one of the science teachers would say, I did one on cells, uh, and I noticed all the kids were looking at the wall. And I noticed there's a little picture of the organelles of a cell on the wall. It's like they're not doing retrieval practice. You know, it's like, and, but, you know, all of those little bits and pieces, we can kind of accumulate some of that wisdom, essentially, that kind of technique, uh, that craft of being able to use the evidence in the classroom. So that, you know, uh, I don't know if you're a, an English teacher in another school, and you're, you're not really kind of connected up to any of our programs or the stuff that's going on with the EEF and others. Um, you know, you've actually got models about how could I approach this? You know, what might be some of these solutions that seem to work elsewhere? That would be good starting points for thinking about how I might try and incorporate the same things in my practice. In the foreword to my book with David, uh, Rob Coe very kindly wrote the foreword. One of the points that he made was that we've now started to generate some quite good evidence from cognitive science and, and from education studies, RCTs and things, about what appears to be quite quite good bets for teachers to try and think about and use. But there's none of the infrastructure to get it into the classroom. Yeah. Uh, there's none of the roads and, and motorways and all these kind of things to help teachers go from zero to the, the destination, you know, smoothly. And I think over time, this is what we, one of my great hopes for things like yeah. the master's program, yeah. is that we'll actually be able to find some of the... So, do some of the pathfinding. Yeah, the signposting. You know, which yeah, is, which is worth at least a master's in my view, to, to actually be able to kind of uh, help other teachers kind of navigate the same trails through the wilderness. If you like. And there's a couple, is there a, a, a paper that you produced at the IFT quite recently has just been put out, whether well, that was PEPs, what, what's that called, and yeah. resources? That... So, um, yeah, so this is uh, what, uh, one of the papers that PEPs has produced, and uh, one of the wonderful things about working at the IFT is that, you know, we're, we are, we're, we're like, Give it away. You know, yeah. If you want to change the world, give it away. Uh, so Peps has written a paper on what is expert teaching. You know, he spent like three years really looking at you know, evidence from a lot of different domains to try and build up a picture about what, is, what does expertise in teaching look like? You know, how is, how is it different from novice teaching? Yeah. And obviously, you know, if you want to help teachers 
really get better. It helps if you've got an idea of what the, the endpoint might look like. But he's also, his most recent one was um, really trying to distill down in a way that few people can do um, some of the kind of like the core implications that come out of things like cognitive science and some of the educational research in a way that's kind of really succinct and kind of practically orientated. Um, you know, Harry Fletcher Wood as well, working with his fellowship programme, has just produced a, a similar thing where the fellows have actually come together to think about from a teacher educated point of view, what are the kind of like the, the key areas that, you know, we want teachers to get really good at and, and to really know. Um, and I think it's that, that, that process of trying to codify some of this and try and scaffold it so that other people can make use of it is, is kind of one of the really exciting things about working for a, for the IFT. And that's freely available on the IFT website yeah, or on, IFT through website. the Twitter account? Great, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, on the on the IFT website, you'll find uh, Pepsi's work, Harry's work, you find blogs by me, uh, and if you, you know, take a look at the courses and see if any of them would, would be interesting. I will say, you know, the pilot, it's a pilot of the Masters uh, programme, so I don't want to make big claims about it yet. Uh, we're a term into a two-year kind of uh, pilot. But, you know, I think what's that, what the exciting thing is the, the promise that over time we should hopefully be able to build up, as I say, more and more uh, these, these, these routes and scaffolds that other teachers will be able to use. So now I'm with Holly Joseph from the Institute of Education at the University of Reading. Um, can you tell us a little bit, Holly, about what you spoke about this morning? Yeah, sure. So um, I was talking about um, dyslexia and what we can do to help children um, who have dyslexia. And I should say that I'm an academic, I do research, so I don't know about classroom practice. But there's a lot of research now um, on what uh, kinds of interventions work with children with dyslexia. And the one that has the most evidence is um, about phonological-based interventions, so helping children with the sounds of words and matching, sounds of letters, sorry, and matching those to, um, to the letters. So there's lots of evidence for that. But that's very time-consuming, it's, it's very difficult for the child, and it's very costly. And so some people have come up with alternatives, which are kind of, um, you could call them quick fixes, for what maybe could help um, children with dyslexia as well. So two main ones. The first one are um, coloured overlays or coloured lenses that children can use when they're reading. And so these will be of different colours, and some people will say, oh, it's so important that a child has a pink overlay or a blue overlay, and this helps them, and people report that it is helpful. And I presented um, um, a review of the literature which shows there really is no compelling evidence at all that these uh, overlays or glasses um, do help children to read accurately. Um, so that's quite damning, really. Um, the other thing that I talked about was a study that we did looking at these specialist dyslexia fonts. And so you can change things like spacing between letters and between words and the shape of um, letters. And the argument is this helps um, people with dyslexia to discriminate different letters and that helps them to read more fluently. And so we conducted an eye tracking experiment and looked at how children are reading text in this specialist font versus just a typical font. And again, unfortunately, we found that there was no difference at all across all of the reading measures um, that we used. So, um, so the kind of two myths, I guess, that I want to bust <laughs> is are that one, the coloured overlays and the glasses don't work in terms of doing a randomized control trial type um, study and also using a specialist um, specially designed font um, which are, can be very expensive um, for um, to help children with dyslexia um, there's no evidence that they work either
Sounds a little bit uh, like the uh, dyslexia equivalent of learning styles or, or, yes, or something exactly, like that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. Or using 10% of your brain. Yeah. Um, Have you just been to see Paul Kirshner? No, I haven't. No, oh, right, no, well, you no, know, see two of the things. Okay, yeah. that's a very common uh, yeah. um, myth. So, I mean, it's a bit unfortunate in a way, right, because it would be wonderful if these overlays worked all the font because you can just yeah. change it like that. But there's also a kind of... Um, ethical issue because these things cost money and so I guess I want to get the message out there that it's not worth investing your money in these fonts or these overlays because the research doesn't show that they work and unfortunately these interventions are hard work but it's not easy to learn stuff and so you have to kind of put in the time and the effort yeah the things that have the impact are not necessarily aren't the quick fixes unfortunately exactly okay thank you very much Holly thank you cheers I'm here with Jonathan Haslam from the Institute for Effective Education. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your session that you delivered, Jonathan? Yeah, so my session was on the Research School cookbook, uh, How Can We Bake Evidence into Practice? Um, And it kind of stemmed from the idea that we're involved with the uh, Research Schools Network, a project with 22 schools at the moment. And these schools are trying to put evidence into practice. Um, And as part of our kind of learning from that, I suppose, it was just about thinking about what are the the different ingredients that you need to to be a school that puts evidence into practice. Um, You know, what are the kind of different recipes that you might have? You know, is there just one answer? Um, So it it was a helpful way of, of, you know, me trying to capture that firstly for myself and hopefully... Uh, that it would then be interesting for other people to to hear about. So this is an, an interactive session, if you like. So you were looking for ideas, or were you giving people ideas? Bit of both. Bit of both, really, because uh, um, I wouldn't kind of want to presume that we have kind of all the answers. And uh, but but also, you know, we, we do we have learned quite a bit both from the research into research use and research engagement, but also more kind of. Uh, experientially through through what the schools who are involved in the research schools project have, have been have been telling us and, mm-hmm. and, and going through and the things that we've been doing with them so so it's just helpful to kind of capture that in case it does prove to be of, of use for anybody in the future who's, who's trying to do the similar kind of thing okay and can you touch on any of those sort of active or effective ingredients kind of if you were starting out thinking about um how to embed the use of research in school? What, what are the characteristics? What does it look like? I suppose the things I'm th- thinking about a few things. Firstly, obviously, leadership is very important, and that the leader kind of kind of sets the tone and, and facilitates it happening within the school. Or, or although he's not necessarily the kind of expert on, on research, there's a bit thinking about uh, the vision and values of a school. And how that might influence uh, the extent to which it's it's possible for research to inform what what the school is doing, but also I think more positively the way that if you're taking an evidence-based approach, it helps you to put your vision and values into practice, mm. see that they're achieving the outcomes that you want to achieve, and then um, you know as you look at new ideas. Uh, see whether they're improve, you know, improving things for the outcomes that you want to raise, or, or, or not. Uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, some of the ingredients that you typically see in a research-engaged school, they're fair. You know, they're what you might expect. You need to have that, that a kind of 
research uh, approach at, at the sort of heart of what the schools are doing. So in terms of kind of school improvement processes, actually allowing uh, uh, that in. There's a lot of allowing uh, the time and space for um, individual teachers to, to kind of engage with the research and, and kind of pick it apart and understand what it means in their practice. Um, and I suppose there's also a bit of kind of yeah, following the, the kind of cycles of, of school improvement that seem to have, uh, have good evidence. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting what you say. Uh, and throughout that is kind of authenticity. You, you've got to be really serious and committed about it. It's not just a gimmick. And soon people will soon recognise in school, if at a leadership level you're not sort of walking the walk, and uh, then it kind of it won't succeed in school. It's got to be from the top right through to the bottom. Yeah, we discussed. It was interesting. That was one of the things that, that people were commenting on that that paying lip service to it, um, and actually that you do need to be authentic and 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 kind of properly engaged with it. I suppose the other interesting thing, though, is that. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is that there's a, there's, there's a couple of, of ways of doing this um, that you can have a couple of poles there's kind of the I suppose what we kind of like is the reflect, you know, reflective practice uh, thing where you're actually giving teachers the opportunity to reflect for themselves develop their uh, develop their practice and, you know, on a kind of school, school wide level but you can have a, a kind of a right answer approach, which is more more directive and, and, and says, right, okay, these interventions have effectiveness, um, sorry, evidence of effectiveness, just do these. So actually the evidence, evidence-informed school, there are all sorts of different, uh, they can also, you know, sorts of different shades and colours and cultures of that school. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that, that one is... Uh, is particularly uh, well, that we know at this stage better um, than another. It, it can it can suit all kinds of different styles and cultural schools. And what about uh, what about evaluation? Because you know, if you're really going to kind of walk the walk, and you put something, you can be research informed, and you can put interventions into place or take on certain approaches. But then, if you're not in some way evaluating how effective those have been. Mm. Are you really sort of adopting it fully or authentically? Because there could be some approaches that you implement based on good evidence that don't work in your school. And therefore, we should ask the question, should we continue to do this? Should we stop it? Or do we need to start again? Or do we do more of it if it works? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of the cycle. Um, you know, looking at whether, trying to evaluate whether or not it's, it's worked for you. Uh, and then, I mean, if it doesn't, did you? Or at least, you know, if it's something that seems to have really robust evidence, ask some questions about maybe why you got that unexpected result. Um, but I mean, at the moment, for me, that's a that's a that's a real cha- that's one of the challenges that we've yeah. got. It's very difficult to do this, um, and you know, I, I think that there's still kind of work to be done in terms of uh, evaluating interventions. You know, evaluating the impact of training, we're finding that is a, you know that's still a challenge. There aren't um, there aren't strong ways of evaluating whether training has had an impact on practice, on yeah uh, outcomes for pupils. So, so you, you know, there are still there's still a long way to go. Yeah, in, yeah. in this in this journey. 
I'm with Karen Gouldberg from the University of Birmingham. Karen, what was your session about? What was the take-home message from it? Well, my session was about looking at uh, educational approaches for autistic children. And um, there were a number of different take-home messages. But basically, my presentation was looking at the research evidence. It was looking at the fact that there are lots of different kind of interventions that people can use in the field of autism. Okay. So I wanted to summarise to the audience what we can take away from the research on those interventions and how some of that research can be of general value to us, but it can't actually tell us how to educate an individual child in the classroom. Sure. So what I was really wanting to look at was what are the really important things that we need to take on board as teachers when we educate children with autism? And there are a number of take-home messages there, but some of the ones that I think are the most important is that we really need to understand the world from the perspective Mm -hmm. of the child with autism. We need to incorporate them and involve them in decisions we make about their education. Uh, We need to work with parents and families because they're the true experts on their children. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand and take on board the perspectives of autistic people quite generally because that can really help us understand more about how autistic people learn in a different way. And so how how would you help me to do that? Because I would not have a clue where to start. So how do you how do you better understand the world from the perspective of someone with autism? Well for somebody who doesn't who doesn't know anyone with autism and um uh, would like to learn more, I would always say start with reading the um, publications of people with autism, adults mm. with autism. There's some really good books out there. Okay. Claire Sainsbury's written a book called Martian in the Playground, for example. Um, there's a number of different books written by autistic people which tell you how they experienced. Would would a starting point, and this is, I, I could be showing myself up here, but I enjoyed the book, The Curious Incident of the Dog in yeah, the Nighttime. Yeah. Would that be a good yeah. place to start? Well, that can be a good place okay. to start, yeah. I think what you find that when you read books by autistic people, you read books like uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, you get some kind of insight into the world of one person with autism. Yeah. Because as many people say, you've met when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. <laughs> okay. They will understand, people will understand that and, and experience the world in, in different ways. But there are some general issues that autistic people have in common and they might, that mean that they process the world in a bit of a different way. And we emphasise that it's about a difference. It's not about a disorder. It's not about there being something wrong with people. It's mm-hmm. a different way of being. If we can start looking at it as a different way of being, we can understand how, for example, sensory issues might really impact on autistic people and how they learn. Then we can start adapting our environment Mm -hmm. and our style of teaching to those children. That's what I think is really important. So it's day two and I'm here with Tom Rees, who is Director of Education at the Multi-Academy Trust, the Northampton Primary Academy Trust, and author of Wholesome Leadership. Uh, Tom, what did you talk about in your session yesterday? Uh, I talked about my book. Uh, It was the first opportunity I'd had to talk about the book since it came out um, about a month ago. Uh, And... um, yeah, I talked a bit about the process of writing as well, whilst still leading a, st- a school. So, right. been uh, been writing for about the last year. Um, originally, it was going to be a sort of three-month project, and then it became six <laughs> months, and then nine months, and, and it was optimistic. A year. Do you think? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, I'd never written a book before, so um, no. you know, it, it was all it was all new. And 
it's really nice um, working with John Cat. You know, one of the things they're really trying to do is get more people who are still in the profession to write books. Okay. So you know, part of the the literature around schools and education. Um, it is authored by people who are still doing the job. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's important. I've taken a lot from books by uh, other heads, other teachers who are, who are still in the role as well. Yeah. I think it, it can help um, with that sort of practical application um, that you get from people's uh, uh, books and blogs as, as well when, yeah. they're, when they're kind of still in role. So, so that was one of the reasons for, for writing. But I see that one of the nice things about it as well is, so you, you're still in role, um, but you've also got um, interviews for each chapter with um, sort of an expert from that area as well. So you've got that nice balance. Is that right? That's right. So wholesome leadership is kind of like about the whole thing of school leadership. I wanted to try and capture the sort of... Uh, breadth of issues that, that leaders deal with day to day you know the practical bit the uh, the people bit the yeah. intellectual bit you know the whole thing um, and so while I was writing you know uh, after a while I realised I just didn't know enough about all of the subjects I was tackling so yeah I approached lots of people within the um, within the profession some really familiar names like yeah. um, Sir David Carter Claire Seeley Daisy Christodoulou Stephen Tierney Andrew Morris Stuart Lark um, alongside some people that perhaps aren't so well known but I've just been fortunate to work with over the years so yeah. um, people who I, I currently work with in the um, in the multi-academy trust at the moment or you know uh, heads that I've, I've worked with in times gone by and that was great because it just brought like a richness to the book and some different voices in there uh, as well which was was fun to do uh, and I think bring you know bring something to each of those chapters yeah and I was just asking you earlier just to, to finish off um, you, you weren't sat in like a in a house in Provence with your typewriter where it was a little bit more hectic than that yeah. you've got a family and uh, yeah it yeah a challenge it was pretty chaotic <laughs> yeah. yeah and um, kind of everyone who, who had written a book says you know it's going to be really difficult and it's really self-conscious you, you know you're sort of writing on your own it's quite a lonely thing at times and you're not sure if you, if what you're writing is any good yeah um, and yeah we've got three, three little ones at home a school oh, wow. uh, 11 schools in the multi-academy trust there's a, a bit of juggling over the last uh, 12 months but uh, it's all good now so well, congratulations thank you very much thank you cheers tom so i'm now with daisy christodoulou of no more marking and author of seven myths and making good progress daisy um what's your session about this afternoon so my session this afternoon is about how we can tell if standards are improving in exams okay so in um, in two minutes, can you give us like the take-home message? What are you talking about? Why it's important? Yeah. So everyone wants to know if standards are getting better. Um, not just people in education. Everyone wants to know, you know, kids today doing better than they were 5, 10, 15, 50 years ago. But it's really hard to actually work out if they are. It's a very difficult technical challenge. Yeah. So I'm going to look at different ways you can try and solve that problem. Look at some of the things Ofcore are doing. And then I'm going to put forward a way you could use comparative judgments to see if standards are improving. And then I'm going to explain how we have used that approach this year with 2018 year six primary children and 2017 children to see if standards have improved between them. And I'm not going to give away the results. Oh, <laughs> the results are results. No, the results are coming out. They're not, I'm not even going to talk about them this talk. We're putting the results out next week. Are you looking so, forward to, to yeah. delivering the results? It will be really interesting. Ah, yeah, it'll be okay. great. It'll be great. <laughs> and so what standards are you talking about specifically? Because you're talking about comparative judgment. And yeah. Traditionally, I think that's, yeah. or, or people sort of think more about uh, comparative judgment as a tool mm-hmm. for writing. Yeah. Um, are you talking about standards just in writing? Yeah, we are for okay. this for this particular. I mean, the first half I'll talk generally about 
problems with standards and how you can okay. define them. But in the second half, when I talk about what we've done, what we've done is, in this case specifically, on year six writing. Yeah. So is this the um, the writing age? Yeah, yeah, it is. So you might have seen on our website recently, we've developed this writing age concept yeah. where we think it's the first writing age measure out there. Yeah. Uh, we don't know of any others. Um, so the way you can use comparative judgment to get a writing age for your children, uh, similar to a reading age, but yeah. for writing. So that's pretty cool. And what you can, we can also do with that in what we have done is we can compare the average scores of children in 2017 with the average scores of children in 2018 mm-hmm. and get a handle on if they have improved on Yeah, that. yeah. Um, and do you see much of a change over that time? So that's what that's that's oh, what you okay. have to wait for. <laughs> Just trying to think of how I can ask different, ask different, different ways of getting yeah. the answer. Okay, yeah, thank you very yeah, much, yeah. Daisy. Go and see Daisy's presentation if you want the answer to these questions. <laughs> or check out the No More Marking blog, yes. presumably, yeah, do, um, do. next week. That's great. Okay, cheers, Thanks. Daisy. That's it for our Festival of Education podcast special. If you've enjoyed it, and I hope you have, you might like to check out other interviews on the Evidence-Based Education blog including a conversation with Robert and Elizabeth Bjork on retrieval practice and desirable difficulties but we'll finish with a song that seems fitting for what's been an amazing festival it's times like these you learn to live again it's times like these you give and give again it's times like these You learn to love again. It's times like these, time and time again.
It's times like these you give and give again. It's times like these you learn to love again. It's times like these, time and time again.